8 to 10 p.m. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. So, warm welcome and a good evening to you. One hour with our big hitter tonight, Professor Ahmed Bawa is the CEO of uh, Universities South Africa. So, we'll find out what that really means. I mean, that's not to be confused with UNISA. There's a difference. There's a dramatic difference between all of that, okay? So, we have him for an hour. You can call in, engage on air, oh nine one one zero four two zero seven. You can tweet, hashtag SFM Viewpoint, as per always, you know that. And then tag me, Ashraf Ganda, tag SFM Radio. Uh, you can SMS four zero nine three eight and uh, WhatsApp voice notes oh six one four one zero four one zero seven. As always, maximum thirty seconds. So if you are interested in education, higher education, as you should be interested, both as a student or a lecturer or a parent or an aspirant student or somebody who understands how important education is in our country and the different aspects around that, well. Don't just listen, engage in all those uh, platforms and welcome to that uh, in advance that you do that. So, Professor Ahmed Bawad, uh, thanks for joining us and agreeing to be, what, in the hot seat as our big hitter for the next hour. <laughs> it's a pleasure and thank you for having me. Thank you, good. So, let, let's start with that first point, U- universities. Do you say universities South Africa, right? Yeah. So, how does, well, what does it do? Because I'm, I know it's not UNISA, but do you get confused with UNISA? Uh, we do, and it's a bit of a pity, I have to say. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, so, uh, universities South Africa, or, or USAF for short, Yeah. Uh, is sort of the umbrella organization of the 26 public universities. Uh, and like all kind of, uh, uh, kind of uh, non-statutory structures, it has a board, and the board is made up of uh, the 26 vice chancellors and myself, okay. 27, 27 of us, a very large board. Um, and, and then uh, uh, the, the main areas of work are uh, kind of in the areas of uh, policy engagement. We kind of write policy. And we uh, engage policy from the state. And it's not just policy from the Department of Higher Education and Training, but it could be from the Department of Home Affairs on visas, or it could be uh, Department of Trade and Industry or, uh, or, or any number of uh, departments. Uh, but we also write policy, so we do research and so on. Uh, it's a very small structure, purposefully, uh, because what, uh, what we really want to do is to make sure that the connection between the structure and the universities was a strong structure. Uh, so whenever we engage in uh, in research, uh, policy research and so on, uh, we bring people in from the sector mm. to mm. work on the projects. And, mm. so. and so, so, okay, so, so every vice-chancellor is automatically well, co-opted onto that board, right? Yeah, they, they, yeah. They, by definition, uh, the, the board is by definition the 26 vice-chancellors okay. and myself. Right. Yeah. How, how effective, how impactful is this organization, UNICEF? Yeah, uh, I think that you know, it, it, it depends uh, what you look at. Um, so we have we have sort of five strategy groups, which are the really critical parts of the organization, if you like. Uh, the one is clearly is teaching and learning. And the idea is really to try and understand how to broaden access and improve success of students and so on. Uh, so it works very much in the area of curriculum, uh, looking at foundation programs, uh, uh, the use of technology for learning and teaching and so on. Uh, the second, uh, and that's chaired by Cizwe Mabizela, who's the Vice Chancellor at Rhodes. The second one is uh, research and innovation, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that focuses very much on uh, on on how to uh, strengthen our research base and so on. And by the way, we have a very strong research base, mm-hmm. and we may perhaps we can talk about that a little later on. And uh, and that's chaired by uh, Professor Toko Maikiso from Mpumalanga University. Okay. 
the third one is the funding strategy group, which is a critical issue, and that's chaired by Professor Spongile Mutwa from the University of uh, Nelson Mandela University. Uh, the fourth one is uh, the Transformation Strategy Group, and that's chaired by Eunice Ballam, Professor Eunice Ballam, mm-hmm. SPU. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's uh, a new one, which we're calling the World of Work Strategy Group, which is uh, really about focusing on how the university sector uh, responds to the big changes that are taking place, uh, the technology ch- changes mm-hmm. and the societal changes in terms of the nature of work and so on. Uh, so those are the kind of the main... And, and who chairs that one? And that one is chaired by uh, Henk de Jager, who's uh, an engineer, uh, vice chancellor at uh, Central University of Technology. Okay, all right. Uh, and then we have two other structures. The one is uh, is called HELM, H-E-L-M, and uh, it really stands for High Education Leadership and Management. And we have a regular program of building uh, capacity of individuals uh, to to take on leadership positions at the university. So it works with heads of departments, deans, all the way through, uh, both okay. on the administrative side and on the academic side. Now, now where does then, let, let's take your work. So, so CEO, I mean, that suggests that you're very much involved in the day-to-day executions yeah. of, of, of the policies and all the yeah. things that you speak about, right? But but where does your organization, so, so USAF's work, differ from, say, the Minister of Higher Education? Right, so so we are non-statutory, right? Mm. So So we represent the sector, uh, whenever the sector needs to speak, uh, kind of as a sector, if you like. So on a regular basis, we have meetings with the department uh, on issues that are kind of that are pertinent. Um, uh, more importantly, of course, uh, I mentioned earlier that we do work on uh, policy. So whenever there's some new piece of policy that we produce, then uh, we engage the minister and we engage parliament and so on. Uh, and then we, there's a certain level of advocacy work. Uh, and, and basically, the CEO's office really manages these structures, but it also works uh, very closely on projects that lead to policy formulation. And, so on. and, and, and within that, um, your relationship then with higher education, the department itself? Uh, so uh, so we, we don't have any statutory relationship, okay. uh, so we are independent. Uh, that was done purposefully uh, to try and ensure that we have a certain distance from is, the is, is there pressure then both ways? Uh, they put pressure on you and you put pressure correct, on them. Absolutely correct. And we think that that's a very valuable thing. Uh, 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 and, and I think the important thing to just remember is that we generally work very closely together with uh, a lot of cohesion and so mm-hmm. on. But there are times, of course, when... We uh, we disagree with each other. What, what what sort of pressures? I mean, what does saying Minister Naledi Pando and, and her office? What sort of pressures do they put on on yourself? Well, for example, um, you know, when there's uh, instability in the system, mm-hmm. uh, very often the issue is you know is the instability due to something going on in the sector which is not suitable. Uh, you know, uh, we've had, for example, recently. Uh, a number of suicides and suicide attempts among students and so on. So that uh, was an issue that she raised very forcefully with us. Um, uh, the whole issue around, uh, you know, just uh, transformation is something that she's very passionate about. Uh, by the way, we, we think that she's an exceptional minister, I have to say. She's tough with us. Uh, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, uh, she's uh, very logical. She yeah. listens to arguments. What do, what do you say about the critics who... who you know, social media allows people to voice opinions immediately. Like, why would you need an old person as a minister of higher education when we need young people to change yeah. things? Like, she's too old. She speaks the Queen's English. Yeah. And, and I mean, those are comments I put to her. But what, what do you make of that sort of criticism of her? I, I just think it's uh, unfair. Uh, because the one thing you really want is a minister who sort of understands the sector, 
who's worked in the sector, who kind of knows the big, kind of the big ticket issues, uh, what to take on, what not to take on, what is possible, what's not possible. Mm, mm. Uh, those are uh, very critical skills to have uh, for a minister, I think. And uh, the second thing is uh, what we really like about her is she's very action-oriented. So when she puts something on the table, uh, or if we put something on the table, then uh, the department follows up, you know. And, uh, uh, and that's very good. And that's fantastic. Yeah. What, what sort of pressures do you put on the department then? Well, generally, it's uh, things like uh, funding, of course. Yeah. Funding is always an issue. Uh, the second is uh, we work very hard on sort of trying to get the department to be, uh, to be kind of uh, uh, to, to provide us with policy security, if you like, policy stability. Uh, it's, it's very difficult for the sector if policies change from year to year and so on. Uh, so we really like to have policy stability, so we work with them very closely on that. Uh, very often... We uh, uh, scream at the department because, uh, you know, they introduce new, new kind of angles which uh, uh, kind of impede uh, research or whatever the case is. You know. mm. well, certainly, but, we certainly talk about all yeah. the, Did you want to say anything else? Sorry. No, no, just to yeah. say that uh, I, I don't want to give you the impression that uh, that is the nature of our the engagement with the department. Generally speaking, it's a fairly good, uh, constructive sort of engagement. Okay. oh You certainly can engage uh, not just with me, but certainly with my guest, Professor Ahmed Bauer, who is the CEO of uh, Universities South Africa. The acronym in this case is USAF. That's U-S-A-F, USAF. Okay. So he's the head of that organization, putting, well, run effectively by 20, well, himself and 26 other vice chancellors. So every represented uh, vice chancellor from the universities around the country. What sort of questions would you want to put to him? I can think about a whole range of issues I would like to ask him, but here's your chance as well. 0891104207. Let, let's pick up on the, on the big bugbear, the issue of funding. Uh, um, and then, by the way, we'll have Adam Habib coming in here next week um, to talk about his new book, which is very specific on the issues of, issues of fees must fall and, and what happened, what, two years back or so, right? But, to to what degree are you able to to instigate re- revising uh, funding policies and and do you then have to speak to to the minister of finance uh to you know to the treasury or do you have to speak to the department of higher education what what's the process yeah. so so the first port of call clearly is the department of higher education mm-hmm. training because that's the department through which uh, money is channeled uh, but we do, of course, have engagements with the depart- with the Treasury as well from time to time, uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's you know if you if we can get the Department of Higher Education training on our side or the Department of Science and Technology on the research side uh, on our side, then that makes a very big difference because it it allows us to engage Treasury in a different way. Uh, you ask, you know, what what are the big challenges? Mm. Um, generally speaking, the uh, subsidy uh, over the last. 10 to 15 years, the subsidy per student that has uh, that has come into the university system has been in the st- steady sort of well, it's either been completely flat or in a steady decline, uh, slight a slight steady decline. Hey, help uh, us out. When you say subsidy, what is subsidy? Okay, mean? so the the government sets aside a certain amount of money every year uh, into what it calls the higher education subsidy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a part of that money is used by the Department of Higher Education and Training itself to to to, uh, to run a whole range of programs mm. that it thinks is important. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the the remainder of the money is what we call the block grant, and that uh, comes to the universities uh, for the universities to control. And uh, the block grant is really based on 
the number of students universities have, the nature of the academic programs they offer, the quantity of research that they produce. So, so, so even if a student is paying, we'll get to pay and no paying, even, even that paying student is still subsidized? All in, students, in some form. every single student uh, in a formal program at a university is, uh, is subsidized. Uh, and, you know, the big challenge, of course, in 2014, 2015, was that uh, because the subsidy had been in steady decline, the fee increase went up and up so that for the universities to balance the budgets. And, and that led to the big crisis, of mm. course. Yeah. Are we able to put a figure in terms of, like, what percentage uh, is the subsidy per student? If you take, oh, uh, if you take the entire sector yeah. as a whole, uh, it's roughly 50-50, 50% from fees and 50% from, uh, from subsidy. But uh, you know, it depends very much on the nature of the university. So if you take University of Cape Town, for example, it's more like uh, uh, 20% subsidy, uh, another 25% or 30% fees, and then there's other income that comes in through research and so on. And, and I take it that subsidy is critical. Subsidy is critical. It's not, really, it's not just critical because, uh, because universities need the money. It's also critical because we, we really want these to be public universities. We really want them to be funded by the state because they play a role not just in, in producing private goods, you know, mm. for individual students, but also for producing uh, public goods. Well, here's the thought. Uh, at the height of fees must fall, and of course it recurs every year. And there's problems right now uh, in Durban once again. The issue of, of learners needing access to education and higher, I think, is a given. We, we, I don't think there's much of a debate about that. But when they can't pay, the expectation of the university to bail them out, uh, is, is that a fair expectation or should that be directed to, to the first case? Should that be a government problem? Yeah. Look, you know, when universities strike up their budgets, when the councils of universities strike up their budgets, it's on the basis that there are a certain number of students at the university that there are a certain number of programs that are running, uh, that there are certain services that are provided to students and to staff and so on. Uh, so, um, so, you know, when, when the issue of debt sort of begins to take hold and debt increases, uh, that is simply money that's being, that was actually earmarked for something or the other that is now not there anymore. Uh, and, of course, that places the universities in a very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having, you know, if you ask the question, you know, the question you asked is, you know, is that, can the university solve the problem? No, the universities can't. It just simply isn't. The, so, so is the anger when, 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 when students protest and they want discounts, they want something? We'll get yeah. to President Zuma's yeah. discussion just now, but yeah. is the anger directed to vice chancellors across the board, you know, in the last few years, yeah. is that misdirected? I mean, I think it's, we think it's misdirected. And, uh, and the, the point is really, you know, uh, you, you, you posed the question in, a, in, a, in an interesting way because what you said was, you know, uh, we, we take it for as a given that students need education. Mm. We accept that too. Uh, the question is then, how do we afford it? And, uh, you know, and, and that's a societal question. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a question that has to be answered uh, nationally. Absolutely. Nationally. Okay, we'll pick up more on that in a moment. I'll also get to your callers, Gerald. We'll get to you in a moment. 0891-104207. Fascinating getting into the mind of the Chief Executive of Universities South Africa, acronym USAF, USAF, and that's Professor Ahmed Bawa. He's with us as a big hitter up to 9 o'clock. Engage him in whichever way you like. The hour is yours and the airtime is certainly yours. Uh, Gerald, in a moment.
Led by Martin Kremer, Mining Weekly offers unrivaled global coverage of the resources industry and the companies and people shaping it. Subscribe now at miningweekly.com. Creamer Media's Mining Weekly. Mining news around the clock. Catch Life Begins After Coffee, an original heartwarming six-part television actuality series which delves into the uncharted realm of job creation for persons with disabilities. It further explores how ableist behavior and words impact the lives of persons with disabilities. My friend calls me stupid a lot, but I don't take it too hard. Don't miss Life Begins After Coffee. Coming soon on SABC2, 6 April at 6 p.m. Brought to you by SABC. BC Education, enriching minds, enriching lives. The drumbeats of war are raging as Everton can't wait for the Saturday to confront Newcastle in the Premier League match of the week. Stand a chance to win a 5,000 rand voucher on the Premier League. Tune in to SABC3 this Saturday live at 4.30pm for the play of the week competition details. SABC Sport, for the love of the game. All right, this is important as we get to, to chatting to Professor Ahmed Bama once again. Before that, of course, uh, Proudly South Africa's lo- Buy Local Summit and Expo takes place at the Santon Convention Center. That's on the 12th and the 13th of March. So coming up pretty soon, right? Uh, so if you're a business startup, come and get survival tips on the 12th of March. And if you're in procurement, learn to leverage local on the 13th of March. Now, the Expo exhibits high-quality local products and services and is open for consumers and business on both days. Uh, if you need to know more, get to the website, Quite simple, buylocalsummit.coza, buylocalsummit.co.za. At SAFM Radio and at Ashraf Gada on Twitter. Okay, first up from the callers as we chat to Professor Ahmed Bama from Un- Universities South Africa is Jadal. Jadal, hi. Jadal, hi to the professor. Well, well, I'd just like to, um, you know, sort of correct you on a term that he's using. He's using government money. It's actually taxpayers' money. And, uh, you know, much like uh, these students are burning up cash, uh, you know, and it's absolute chaos what's going on there. But the the, gov- the money that this government steals, they also think it's government money, but it's not. It's taxpayers. Okay, money. but I mean, aren't we just we aren't we just playing with semantics? Because I mean, this question I no, put no, no, because it's not semantics because it's something you need that the, the students need to understand. It's taxpayers, ordinary people that go to work, that give up a portion of their salaries to fund this circus, and it's an absolute circus. And I would be embarrassed to say that there's some sort of management going on there. It is chaos. We see it every year. It is a waste of of just huge amounts of resources that was if, if they were spent effectively and there was less destruction of property just just things would work better in this country firstly those students need to be whatever the funding issues are they need to be sorted out if the students were promised free education that's what they need to get but there is no way that it's acceptable that we go through the scenario of damage to property uh, uh, missing of classes because they think it's government money. It's taxpayers' money. People go to work and they give up a portion of their salary for this circus to continue. And I'll tell you now what they need to put into those students' heads, that the behavior that they are, are, are engaging in at the moment makes them unemployable. What they should be given is criminal records so that we don't have to employ them. Because imagine having one of those people in your factory. If and imagine giving them criminal the, records. I, I think you're being well, very simplistic well, 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 about it. That's what they deserve. If you, if you behave but like you say, you say students as in plural. Hold, hold it, Gerald. You know, when you say students, mm. you're talking about an entire student community. Why don't you say no, 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 the person who's committed arson... No, but, but that's my point. Hold it, Gerald. Let's, let's get this clear. Why don't you say the person who's committed arson could well be locked up 
And many people listening may say, absolutely. But when you say the students, it's a whole block of people with no, different not, views. Of course I'm not generalizing. I'm generalizing the students that are taking place. It's public violence. We see it every single year. Okay. And the reason they do it and they engage in it and they don't make any progress or, or take their studies seriously, because you use the term government money. It's not government money taxpayers money okay. if they understood that it was taxpayers money they might behave themselves okay got that and i'll tell you now yeah. just one more point we've got a, we've got falling tax compliance in this country largely because of corruption but when taxpayers look at this they just think to themselves they might as well go burn their own money okay got that strong words from gerald in uh, durban uh, respond to that yes, no, thank you so, so so fees must fall as a as a, as a, and finance around it, we'll, we'll talk about that separately just now, right? But just talk about the comments he's made. Yeah, so, so f- let me begin by saying, Gerald, that uh, I think we, we all agree on the public violence issue. I mean, that, uh, you know, the chaos at the beginning of every, of every year is something that really damages uh, our sector, it, uh, the high education sector, but it also damages the nation. So we agree on that. Uh, the big issue for us really is to try and understand uh, what the role of the higher education system is in society. So let me just give you just some indications of uh, you know, what the produce or what the products of the system are. We produce about 220,000 graduates a year. Mm-hmm. These are people who are your, your doctors and your lawyers and your engineers and you name it. Uh, we produce about 22,000 research papers a year. Uh, the unemployment rate of graduates in South Africa is below 6%. You know, uh, whereas the, the unemployment rate of, uh, of, uh, of youth in South Africa is close to 50%. Um, and I think the important thing to remember is, is that, uh, you know, with all its limitations, uh, the sector um, does actually provide the opportunity for a massive social mobility in a society that's very, very unequal. Now, you know, a, part, a large part of the instability at the beginning of every year is really due to this very unequal the nature this very unequal nature of our society uh, that is what plays itself out at the beginning of every year uh, clearly there are other elements you know there are other political elements and so on that come into the fray but generally speaking um, you know once the demonstrations are over the system functions and it produces quality graduates who uh, are highly employable and and that point the channel brought up that do, do you get a sense of students don't get it where the money is coming from? I think that that's accurate. I mean, I think that uh, students think that there's an endless pit somewhere uh, and which, uh, from which money kind of emanates. Uh, so there's a constant demand for more and more and more. And that, that's something that I think is, uh, uh, is, 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 is something that and, we have to do. And your understanding of, of the burning of, of buildings and property as a, as a vehicle to express oneself, yeah. uh, 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 to, to, to protest... Uh, your opposition to yeah. the status quo? Yeah, we, we we don't buy that. I mean, we, we think that uh, we think that the uh, disruption of universities, the disruption of classes, the uh, the instability uh, at our institutions uh, does tremendous harm to young people themselves, to their families, uh, and to society more generally. We think that there's enough space for engagement, and that engagement happens all the time. Uh, we have to kind of break out of this cycle of uh, of of, uh, of instability. Uh, that's something I fully agree with. Okay, and, uh, and let's see how we'll do that in a minute. Let's get to another call. Leanne's on the line. Hi. Oh, Lynn. Sorry, Lynn. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. I've got a, a question and a comment for your speaker, please. Yeah, go uh, ahead. 
My comment is that from a funding perspective, I understand that students are frustrated when they see so much fraud and corruption being wasted, and they feel possibly that that money could be directed at them. So that's in favor of the students. But my question here is that as a person, I would also be in favor of, of free education for those that need it. But what are the students doing themselves to earn it? And I'm talking about earning it in the sense of marks or possibly having... Uh, extracurricular activities and work out there, working in hospitals, uh, working as policemen on roads, all that type of other applications that they can actually engage themselves with in part-time to help earn their keep. And if they fail, why are they then given a second year for free education? That's what I'm asking. Okay, if they fail. Thanks for that call. Uh, Lynn, respond to that. Yeah. So, so what should they pay to receive free education. So, uh, Lind, uh, b- both very important and uh, I- important and interesting questions. Uh, first of all, the new bursary system that's now available has very strict academic conditions. Uh, first of all, students have to pass 50% of their courses every year to retain the bursaries. If they fail more than 50% of the courses, they lose they lose their bursaries. Uh, secondly, uh, for a three-year qualification the expectation is that the bursary will only be available for one year beyond that. So, in other words, uh, for a three-year qualification, students will be given four years. If they carry through some subjects in the some fourth subjects, year. Some subjects, if it's a four-year curriculum. So, there are very strict uh, uh, kind of requirements of performance. By the way, if you take the performance of students with NISFAS grants in the past mm. and compare that with students who didn't have NISFAS grants, even students who were totally fee-paying and so on, um, the performance of NISFAS students is slightly better, 7% better than uh, non-NISFAS students. What, what, do we, what do we deduce from that? I think it's, a, it's an indication that if students feel secure with their financial well-being uh, while they're at universities, uh, then they just plug in and they work hard. You know? and, uh, and this kind of idea that universities provide young people uh, you know, with a foot out of poverty, with a step out of poverty, mm. is a huge driver for young, for young South Africans. Uh, so, uh, so, so the NISFAS system, with all its kind of complications and so on, has had a huge impact on the on the nature of. So there has been lots of subsidisation over mm. the years. Besides, even, absolutely, even absolutely, now, and we'll yeah. get to that in a second. Right. Can Thanks for that call, uh, Tabo in Pretoria. Hi. Hi. Evening, uh, dear guest and your listener. Thank you. Uh, you know, I've been asking myself these questions. We, in actual fact, South Africa is one of the uh, highly has. Uh, universities have produced one of the highly educated people in this country. And, and unfortunately, I seem to be having this question. We've got a lot of people with PhDs and everything, uh, in engineering, motor, motor mechanic, and whatever, whatever. But we have never produced a car. Now, I'm questioning our educational outcomes. I'm, I'm actually challenging our guest day, to look into our educational outcomes. Uh, this is the skill, the knowledge, and the value. Um, are they making our, 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 uh, uh, the products of these universities, uh, of technologies and universities, and these indigenous universities, to be productive or to be entrepreneurs or what? Because honestly speaking, this is a problem to me. South Africa is failing to produce a car of its own, but it's got the most educated people 
that are coming from these universities. Okay, and still not enough. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, right. You want to touch on that? Just the quality of, of you know, in, in terms of, of producing excellence with motor cars? It's a very, a very important yardstick, yeah. I would think. I think that's a, it's a really interesting question. And mm. it, I think it's one that's really a big challenge, not, not just for mm. our university system, but for uh, for the whole of the you know the, the the economic system and so on. Uh, just to say, first of all, you know that uh, that it's really the enterprise of the private sector that should be driving the kinds of industries uh, for the production of cars and so on. I, you know, I I don't believe that we don't have the engineers that can mm-hmm. that can take this route, if you like. I mean, that's not the you know that's not the problem. The problem is that uh, that there just isn't the kind of the uh, the, uh, the 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 industrial capital, if you like, to uh, to drive industries like uh, building cars and so. Shouldn't therefore there be a, a close relationship between universities and and business and and innovation, so that instead of you just turning out the academics, yeah. uh, doing it in conjunction with business, and maybe it's done already, but yeah. to say try and, and stimulate just new thinking. Yeah. No, I think that that's fair, and uh, you know, just again, just to say that. Uh, one of the biggest kind of engines for research and innovation in the South Africa is, in fact, the university system. The the big challenge, of course, is that what we're finding is that the the um, the investment of the private sector in uh, in the South African private sector in in research and innovation and uh, in uh, technology development and so on is actually in decline, uh, and that's what worries us a lot. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. that uh, you know the, the uptake of the what the universities are producing. Uh, it just isn't there. Okay, and that, that's a big concern, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Let's get another call, then I'll pick up on the issues of, of access to education and who's done what around it. Morris, go ahead. Hi. Uh, good, e- good evening, Good evening, good indeed. Evening, sir, Thank you. Uh, good evening. Okay, mine is not necessarily a comment, but uh, it's uh, my experience with uh, the universities of South Africa and NSFOS. What has been happening to me is that in 2012, okay, in 2012, I started listening to you. Ever since you've been uh, presenting the Aspen show yeah. in SAFM. And then after that, I got, I got inspired uh, by many people. And I was in grade 12 by then. And after that, um, I lost bo- both my parents. And after that, I became the breadwinner. And after that, I became the, the breadwinner for my two uh, twin siblings. And becoming the breadwinner for my twin siblings, I applied for NSFAS. And after applying for NSFAS, uh, they declined me. Reason being, they said that uh, I was uh, earning a lot of money and uh, I could afford like, to pay for, for my own fees through UNISA. And I was intending to study through UNISA. But then... Okay, if, I, pretty, if I can just get you to rush it. I, I want to hear your story, but we need to move on very quickly if you can, please. Okay. I've been taking care of my siblings from 2012. They were in high school by then, grade 10 and grade, grade 9, respectively. But then me, I, I was intending to study, but then I was taking care of them. So my question is, if me, at this moment, I'm willing to apply for NSFAS, 
because now my mom mm, my siblings are in their second and third year in university respectively mm. what am i how how am i going to apply to get in as fast because okay let, from, let, let's from, let's find it out I, i'm not sure whether uh Amidawa can respond to that directly but go ahead uh, okay. just stay, stay on the line in case there's a follow-up yeah uh, Morris, uh, you know, my, my understanding is the following: that if you haven't been to university yet, and if you've, uh, if your if your earnings are below three hundred and fifty thousand rand, that uh, you will be provided with a disfas grant as long as you are admitted to a university. So you know, it's a very simple set of rules. Uh, the income has to be below three hundred fifty thousand rand, and uh, uh, mm. you have to be admitted by a university, and that will give him. Uh, that for all intents and purposes, but, that but maybe you sense. just need to investigate with them directly. I think do that because technically they can assist you. All right, Morrison, and best wishes. No, okay, Ashraf. Yeah, Ashraf. Uh, what is happening is that uh, I'm taking care of my siblings, and then after it, like each and every moment, uh, there's expenses that come. Okay, but, but, I, but I just want to say this, Morris. I don't want to be difficult. You know, we're speaking in general speak here, right? In, in this conversation. Yeah. Your specific requirement uh, with respect, I don't think Professor Bawa can actually help. He's, he's not with NASFES, right? Uh, you know, you need to speak to them directly and look it up on the website. It's available and you can engage with them. That's what I'm saying. All right. Okay. I, I, okay. I wish you success, but I don't think it can be answered uh, in detail here. Uh, that, however, brings us. Thanks for that call, Morris. L- let's then talk about. So, fees must fall, the protest that happened two years back. Then the president's announcement that appeared to come across for me that the vice chancellors, which means even people like yourself didn't know a thing about it, um, and even the Department of Higher Education maybe, uh, and and now what has been agreed upon, and, and still the protests continue. Help us understand what's been going on. So, so Morris raises a really important point mm. uh, because uh, you know the, the statement that was made uh, uh, on the 16th of uh, December 2017 by Jacob Zuma. Uh, you know, was kind of pronounced as if it was a free education and so on. Uh, well, there were still very tight restrictions. Uh, and Morris raises the point that even if he's earning 500,000 rand a year and uh, and he has two siblings and uh, he he has to cater for them because they're at university, um, uh, that that actually excludes him from uh, this first grant. Yeah, uh, because so he's too wealthy. He's too wealthy, comments. exactly, yeah. yes. Okay. Uh, but that leads us on to your question, yeah. because actually, you know, this is really the big source of the of the tensions that we have at university now. Uh, so, if a, if a young person comes to, is admitted to university, has a, a family income which is uh, three hundred fifty one thousand rand, uh, that student is excluded from the NISFAS, uh, the, from the bursary system. Uh, by the way, for those students who are qualify for the bursary system, it's a fantastic system. Uh, but so, so what has happened? Just what has happened from the time of President Zuma's announcement right. to now? What, what has changed? Okay, so uh, you know when when Morris uh, said that he was first declined uh, at that point in time, the uh, the the the, fam- the cutoff in family income was one hundred and twelve thousand. So that went up from one hundred and twelve thousand to three hundred fifty thousand. Uh, and what that meant essentially was that uh, young people coming from ninety percent of South African households uh, now had the opportunity to uh, to get these bursaries. To uh, there were two conditions, of course. The one is the family income, and the other was admission to it. And once they do, then it's fully funded. It's fully funded. Fully, it's full cost of studies. 
um, fully funded. Uh, now, of course, that ex- that continues to exclude students who fall outside of that bracket. Is, do you think that's right? Uh, I think that's a very big challenge for us, and uh, and I think that one of the challenges we face as a system, uh, you know, universities, government, and so on, is to try to understand what we can do uh, to cater for students in what we call the missing middle. You know, that strange term. But uh, so if, if, you know, for example, uh, there should be some kind of system in place, a, a, a grant system, a loan system, something in place, which says that if a young person uh, is admitted to university uh, and has, uh, you know, where the family income is below 600, 700,000 rand, uh, there is some facility available. So if not a full subsidy, I mean, but, but was, there was a thing called Edulon, does it still exist? Edulon still exists. But, you know, the, the Hare Commission uh, kind of suggested the creation of uh, what uh, they called income contingent loans. By the way, these happen in several parts of the world. Uh, uh, and that's a system which essentially says that if a student is admitted to university, they will get a loan and that the payback on the loan is really uh, uh, dependent on uh, income re- reaching a certain level. Uh, that's a model that maybe we should be looking at for this category of students. Uh, the other model, of course, is to say that somehow uh, our government and, uh, you know, using uh, the idea of taxpayers' money and so on should be leveraged for all students. Can, can, and your thoughts on that? Well, what we, you know, what we gather from Treasury and from the Department of Higher Education Training is that that's just unaffordable. And, uh, you, know, and uh, you know, one has to say that it will be very hard to understand uh, in terms of the current fiscus and so on. Uh, where that money would come well, and from. Well, the same could apply to, say, give everybody a car, isn't it? And it's also Correct. unaffordable, but it would be very nice. Yeah. Uh, but there's an expectation from many people that it should be paid because these learners who then graduate are in a position where they can impact on society. So isn't that a very good trade-off? Let's get more calls. Anonymous on the line. Hi. Hello, Anonymous. Hi. Hi. Um, good afternoon. Good can evening. I, yeah. Can, uh, good evening. Can I state my question? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I'm a second year uh, student at Howard, and my degree is a uh, general degree for three years. So um, I'm going to do a PGC in my fourth year, and I've um, funded the NAS test, and I I uh, the 50% pass rate. I um, my marks is way more than that. What I wanted to know is, like, for the three years, my 50% pass rate is like more than that, and, you know, I'm continuing doing well. And for the PGC, what are the chances of my master's continuing? Okay, let's just, uh, just stay on the line. Uh, did, you, did you hear that clearly? Yes, yeah? yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid that uh, the, the, the bursary system doesn't apply. Um, Hi, yeah. 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 Uh, the bursary system doesn't apply to uh, to qualifications which are beyond the first qualification. Uh, however, there might well be funding available through the Department of Basic Education for the PGCE. Uh, it's a program called the Funza Lushaka. That There might well be funding available for that. Um, so I, I would just say to you, you know, please investigate, you know, just uh, what's possible there. And, and, and who, who should she investigate with? Uh, the Department of Basic Education. But okay. if she asked uh, people in the Faculty of Education at, uh, at UKZN, uh, that would they, they, uh, they, they they'd be able to tell her, yes. All right. Ho- hopefully you're going to have some luck along that way. Thanks for that call, uh, Anonymous. We'll get more right after this. Miles Apart, Miles Together, a brand new show that reunites you with your loved one. 
SABC3 is looking for you to be part of this amazing new reality show. You can enter in two ways. Send us a video explaining who you would like to surprise by bringing a loved one from overseas or you can send us a video about a family or close friends event you would like to go to in South Africa to surprise a loved one. Who knows? Miles apart, miles together could arrange these surprises for you. To enter, send your video via WhatsApp to 060-642-9257. That is 060-642-9257. Miles apart, miles together. Reuniting loved ones. Brought to you by SABC3. The Summer of Cricket leads the proceedings this Sunday at 10 a.m. on SABC3. Then Beyond Boundaries takes over at midday on SABC2. Athletics Alive is at 12.30, followed by Swimming at 1 p.m. Playing for the coaches on SABC1 at 2.30. Then La Duma at 3 with the relegation battle between Black Leopards and Chipper United. Catch soccer highlights on Soccer Zone this Monday at 10.30 p.m. on SABC1. SABC Sport for the love of the game. Good to play with people's hearts. <laughs> Sexual tension? No, not even close to it. Obviously, I like you. <laughs> I'm trying not to be hurt again. How's it gonna be like for your family to perhaps accept an interracial relationship? I need you that time. So you're sending me out into the danger. Sorry. Where do you fall on the hot crazy scale? I know. The longest date Mondays at 7:30 p.m. only on SABC3. Electricity, just like water, is something many people cannot do without these days. But in the event of an extended power outage, as we've seen during load shedding, would your life come to an end? It shouldn't. This week on Ilungalalako, energy experts reveal steps you can take to still maintain your lifestyle. Join us on Monday at 12 noon, but repeats on Thursdays at 11 p.m. on SABC1. Hashtag SAFM Viewpoint. So we've got 12 minutes or so to go with our guest, the Chief Executive of Universities South Africa, or USAF, that's U-S-A-F. And I'm talking to Professor Ahmed Bauer. So he heads up that position, which is a body put together by all the vice chancellors uh, around the country. So 26 plus him as the, as the CEO. L- let's then go back to the issues of, of just fees for the moment, right? W- what have we learned from fees, Ms. Fall? I mean, is that a fundamental takeout? Yeah, look. The, the the one thing that the one thing that we have learned is the uh, fact that uh, you really cannot have a university system in a democratic society, which is unaffordable for the majority of people in the society. Uh, you know, that's something that was really brought us to the fore. And uh, you know, up to this point in time, sort of the system was sort of cruising, if you like, you know, uh, with with lots of difficulties. But uh, but what the fees must fall did do was really highlight the idea that. Uh, the university system has to be affordable. So, so did the students put the necessary pressure that if they were not there, people like yourself and all the vice chancellors and the Department of Education yeah. and the presidents, like, there's a problem, but like, what can we do? It did, yeah. did it put it onto the so, national agenda where they couldn't, where they, you couldn't ignore it? Exactly. So, so let me put it this way: you know, uh, every meeting that we had with um, with ministers, you know, Blaine Zimande, Tlingiwe Mkise, and before them, every single meeting we spoke to them, we raised the issue of funding. Uh, but all it took really was a couple of weeks of uh, mayhem in 2015 that got the government's attention. You know? uh, and I think that that was a very important 
uh, outcome. The second big outcome, of course, was just this uh, really interesting debate about uh, the decolonization of curriculum and so on. And, and that uh, also... So let me just take a, a step back. You see, okay. in 1995, we had the National, Council, uh, National Commission on Higher Education, mm-hmm. uh, which was chaired by J. Ram Reddy, and uh, it produced, uh, in essence, produced the Higher Education Act and so on. In some respects, the National Commission on Higher Education uh, provided us with an opportunity of having a kind of social contract uh, for the university system with society. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it worked well for 15 years or so. Uh, and then we began to see the cracks. You know, and, uh, and I think that what, we learned, uh, what we've learned over the last uh, three to four years is that there's a need for another social compact. Mm-hmm. between the universities and society. Because, can I say this, that in spite of the president, former President Zuma's announcements and in spite of the, the, these bursaries now being more widespread, there's still a high level of distrust between the students and, and the university, university management. And I may not be specific about one or two, yeah. but in general. Yeah. I, I think I agree with you on that. And, uh, but it's not just the students, by the way. It's also kind of society more generally. You know? uh, I mean, the why, why do you think there's distrust there? And I think it's it's largely because um, you know there's it's it's a point that you raised earlier, which is you know the uh, you know the, the kind of the connection between uh, universities and the business sector, universities and the uh, industry, and so on. Although they're there, uh, aren't really as developed as we should uh, we hope they would be. Same with the community, mm. same with civil society, same with the not, not-for-profits uh, sector. So how, how do you get to a situation now where students through their SRCs, uh, the university you know, management committees, uh, Department of Higher Education and, and the, the Treasury, they had this, this compact that you speak about where, where everybody understands and agrees this is how we're going to this is the rules of engagement for the next 10 years without disruptions, but they still get all the gains that they need because you want them to graduate. Yeah. No, I, I think that the way to do it now, and, and, uh, and it's, a, it's a much better position than we were in 1995. Uh, we do have structures in place now, such as the National Planning Commission, for example, uh, you know, which could uh, run this, this very substantial project, if you like, of developing a new social compact between higher education and and I shouldn't say higher education I should really say post school education because it also includes the TVT sector yeah. you, what's your thoughts on uh, your your position on, on the TVTs or the Tibet colleges because the general phrase is they're a waiting station for, for learners who really want to get into right. universities so so we we are fully uh, cognizant of the fact that our system is sort of lopsided at the moment we have more students in the university system than we have in the college system uh, it's a lopsided system uh, because you really want that to be reversed for, for many reasons. But one of them, and a very pertinent reason, is that the university system is by far the most expensive part mm. of the mm. education system. So you really want to reverse that. You really want to have many more students at the TVT sector uh, qualifying with, uh, you know, with skills, with uh, uh, kind of knowledge and so on, which fits directly into the economy. Why, like. why do you think there's a... Uh, there's there's a lack of desire to go there as a first choice. I think it's it's about reputation and it's about uh, just the fact that we have such a disarticulated system. It's still very very difficult for a young person who's in a in a TVT sector, uh, even if they qualify there, to get into a university. So students really prefer to go, and the family prefer to. Because I I had uh, Buti Manamela, the deputy minister yeah. of higher education, here a few months ago, and I said, 
and I know he's come through that system yeah. himself, but to say, isn't it about the branding? You know, so for example, the fees must fall example you gave, there may have been lots of discussions that you people had, but until somebody branded it, hashtag fees must fall, then the, the, the struggle stuck. Yeah. Okay. In the same way, if, Maybe just the word TVTs or Tivit Colleges just doesn't sound very good. And there needs to be a complete rebranding of, of the yeah. imaging around it. I think it's deeper than that. I mean, I think it requires a, a, a kind of rethinking of the re- relationship between the colleges and the universities, mm. the way in which students can flow from one to the other easily, uh, just the connection between the TVT sector and industry, uh, all of that, I think, needs to be rethought. Um, and I think that, you know, that the idea of a social compact is really to address these very big issues. Um, it's also, we're also fully aware of the fact that if the TVT sector doesn't work, uh, the sustainability of the higher education system is very, very threatened. And the reason mm-hmm. I say that is because uh, there's just very little space for expansion now, you know, yeah. in terms of… Well, what's, your, what's your take on higher education, so in this case the universities? Uh, in terms of if it being the conveyor belt to to answer to the problems of society, that means to meet the needs of society, are the universities doing that or or not? And I think I think very largely speaking, I think we're doing a good job. Uh, I mean, just uh, just to give you an example, I mean, you know, if you look at the unemployment rate of graduates, mm-hmm. that's a very good sign. It tells you that there's still a very high absorption rate uh, of graduates. So you said what five five percent uh, between five and six percent? Yeah. Okay. Uh, which is way below the national unemployment rate. Um, uh, but having said that, we can always do better. I mean, so I'm not suggesting mm. that you know that it's all hunky dory and we just we can relax. Uh, and and I think that you know one of the big projects uh, of uh, Yusuf is precisely that: is to say, how do we keep this engine going? You know, how do we try and ensure that we are constantly building uh, more relevance? We spoke about. So. I mean, there's been lots of discussion on 4IR and the future of work. Yeah. Uh, are these discussions taking place from the top in terms of curriculum to no. say there needs to be a complete revision, yeah. reimagining yeah. of the way yeah. we do things? No question about it. I mean, we just today, in fact, we had a workshop on precisely that. Uh, we have a, we have a strategy group, as I mentioned earlier, that mm. works precisely on this. And by the way, it's not just about the you know the the big technological changes, but there's also kind of uh, sociological changes that are taking place in the world of work. Uh, for example, you know, just uh, the gig economy and the uh, the fact that uh, you know many societies are now moving towards a kind of uh, a thirty-hour working week, mm. you know, and the implications of that and so on. All of those have huge implications for uh, for the university. Is, is, is the way we lecture outdated, or is that is that okay for now? No, there's, there are huge changes taking place again. I mean, so many many universities have now gone into what we call blended learning where a, a large amount of the learning actually takes place on learning management systems. Uh, the, in, the face-to-face communication between lecturers and, and, uh, and students is mainly around uh, kind of tutorial-type uh, engagements. So that change is taking place. And, uh, is, is that better? Is that better for South Africa when compared to the rest of the world? Uh, I, you know, I don't think we're, you know, I don't think we're kind of that advanced yet, but uh, I think that we're, we're making headway. Uh, the, the the big challenge I think we face at the moment is uh, the question of the cost of bandwidth and so on. Because mm. you know, if if you want to move into this direction uh, in a very vigorous way, uh, it does mean that everybody has to have uh, mm. connection uh, to the internet. Absolutely. So well, what's your take on decolonized education? What what it, what does it mean? Yeah. I, look, I, I think that this is just a, a fantastic debate because it's in a sense. 
uh, we just have to remind ourselves that our university system has a particular history. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not talking about the 1970s and 1980s. I'm talking about uh, way before that. Uh, you know, it, it was a, it, the history was very much located within the colonial context and so on. Uh, having said that, I mean, I, you know, I think it's a false impression that nothing has happened over the years. I mean, so, you know, I can remember changes at the University of mm. Natal uh, in, the, in the 1980s around uh, literature, for example, you know, the, just the change from Shakespeare and so on to... Uh, and, and should we be more Afro Afrocentric or or even more South African centric? Yeah, I rest? mean, I, you know, I think that I, th- I think the really big debate here is how do we uh, how do we gear our our research and teaching enterprises uh, in such a way that we make much more connection with uh, with the local context, if you like, and you know, and I think a part of the decolonization debate is about that. Hmm. What, what, are, are there areas, you know? Um, Around the management of of universities, maybe just even relooking at the way universities are managed, not even in the learning side, that that's that's part of the agenda here. Yeah? Uh, clearly, I mean, I, you know, I mentioned the higher education leadership and yeah. management program mm. is aimed precisely at that. We have a huge turnover at the at the management level for you know for obvious reasons. Uh, but just to give you a hint of this, I know in in the last eighteen months, we have thirteen new vice chancellors out of twenty six, a fifty percent turnover. Um, now, it's not always, you know, that we have the right kinds of candidates for appointment and so on. So we're working very hard at trying to understand how to build a broader, more qualified pipeline, if you like, mm. for candidates. And you mentioned Professor uh, Bellum is involved in, in, in transformation. Yeah. Again, transformation at university, what, what does it mean? How, how would you measure that? Okay, so the Transformation Strategy Group has a number of projects going on. But this year, uh, for the next two to three years, we've decided to focus on two things. The one is how to design our universities around our students. It's really saying what kinds of cultural change and uh, academic change and uh, kind of uh, in- infrastructure change mm-hmm. do we need to put in place to kind of really support the success of our students. And I don't mean academic success. I mean academic, uh, intellectual, mm-hmm. uh, you know, emotional, social, and so on. Uh, the other project is, again, the one that we discussed, which is to say how do we... Uh, change the culture for institutions to become much more engaged in society. So those are the two big kind of projects we think which will lead to culture change. And, and let's hope you're going to be successful at all of that. Is there a last word you want to just, uh, last thing you want to mention as we wrap no, up? I, th- I think the, the, there's a really big question about the, uh, about the ownership of our universities. You know, uh, it, there's, a, there's a challenge, it seems to me, to, uh, to get people to understand that these are social institutions, that they belong to society that they don't belong to the vice chancellors or, you know, that they belong to society and, uh, and, and that society really needs to take ownership of them, really needs to get much more involved in them. And, and how does society do that? And I think society has to do that by becoming much more interested in what's going on in the universities. Okay, not just yeah. when fees must fall and whether yeah, the exactly. kids are going to be able to get their lectures. Appreciate your time. It's, it's very, very complex, and we, we touched on a range of issues. By the way, Adam Habib will chat to him, I think, next week, Thursday, specifically around fees must fall uh, and in terms of all his experience. And ironically, Judith Lamini was the chancellor, but it's just quite a coincidence, actually, because she's done many other things. She's a medical doctor and a businesswoman. Uh, we'll talk to her about her new book. I think it comes up next week, Tuesday. So listen out for that as part of the Big Eater series. Appreciate your time. Thanks for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. It's been, it's been really great getting into your mind as the chief executive of universities uh, South Africa. That's Professor Ahmed Bawa. Let's get the news now. It's nine o'clock.